0: DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It's Thursday, May 20th. We have a lot to talk about Uh, with a great panel uh, today, and um, as I introduce them, um, I want to thank all of you who responded to our show yesterday when we talked to Anna Sale, the host of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money, who's got this new book about those issues, Let's Talk About Hard Things. Uh, It really had a wonderful response from all of you, and if you didn't get a chance to hear it, it's available on our podcast right now. Um, I think we talk about hard things on this show almost every day, although it's not death, sex, and money we're talking about, Uh, but politics is a hard enough subject to deal with in these uh, fascinating times. Um, Let's get right to the panel. Uh, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us, as he does on every Thursday. Kevin, good morning. Hello. How are you?
2: I'm good, Bill. Good to be here. And uh, uh, another all-star panel I'm lucky to be part of.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, we're very happy to have you here as well. We're joined by Professor Andra Gillespie. You all know her well as a professor of political science at Emory University. She's also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference uh, at Emory University. Andra, how are you?
3: I'm fine. How are you?
1: Good, good. We, I, You know, I, I said before the show when we were all chatting, I know that you've now gotten through exams, you've gotten your grades done, but as always, I ask you, are you going to get a summer to relax? And your answer is always what? No. No. I don't know what those are. <laughs> uh, we're, we're also joined today by two of our favorite counterbalancing forces, a Republican and a Democrat, and... Until the pandemic, uh, uh, Sunday school teachers together at their church, uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Democrat from Decatur, and former state representative Edward Lindsay, who represented uh, the city of Atlanta. Mary Margaret, how are you doing? I'm
0: doing great. That's All Saints Episcopal Church downtown next to the varsity. Oh. Come visit us.
1: Okay. so Oh, great. So you, <laughs> you go to service. We go you to Sunday lunch. Go over to the Varsity and have a hot dog.
0: Sunday
1: lunch. Oh, Okay. Uh, hey, boys, hey, Edward. How are you?
4: In my family, uh, the boys only went to uh, the Varsity if they were good in church.
1: <laughs> how <laughs> often did that end up really being, Edward? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Let's get right to it. We're going to actually start our conversation with a look at news out of Washington that impacts the state of Georgia and certainly the Georgia congressional delegation. Um, There were a couple of measures in the last couple of days that Georgia Republicans took uh, a—bills that had bipartisan support, but the Georgia Republicans were very firm in opposing, regardless of the bipartisan nature of the legislation— Kevin, I want to start with, I think, what was the big one, which uh, was yesterday uh, when the House acted on a measure that would establish a commission, an independent commission, to study the January 6th insurrection at the United States Capitol. We should point out that, initially, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy had uh, supported the effort to draw up a bipartisan bill. He appointed John Katko, the Republican from New York, to oversee the Republican side of this. Katko actually even drew up the bill. And, Kevin, by all accounts, it gave Republicans what they wanted. But that's not the way it unfolded in the Capitol yesterday.
2: No, it, uh, it, the Republicans have been consistently... Uh, trying to, uh, let's just say, uh, alter history. And I, I guess it just was too hard to uh, open the door for someone to thoroughly document that history. And uh, I think it's a shame. I mean, I think it's a sort of thing the country needs to go through no matter how painful, but it was uh, it's just an odd combination of events. And then of course, Mitch McConnell came out against it, signaling that it has probably no chance in the Senate.
1: Um, yeah, Andra, it was a surprising turn of events because both McConnell and McCarthy had initially said that they thought a commission was a good idea. Uh, McCarthy, as I said, actually uh, wanted to have CATCO uh, very involved in crafting the bill. And at the last minute, the rug was pulled out from under the Democrats, and they were accused of, in fact, coming forth with a very highly partisan measure. Andra?
3: So I can't say that I was surprised by what happened, especially over the discussion in the last week. I think we knew that most Republicans weren't going to support this and that uh, the current leadership leads from behind. So they see what the critical mass thinks and then they just try to get ahead of it. And it's really unfortunate because there needs to be a commission just in general to understand the health of the institution, to also understand what procedures that Congress oversees, particularly with respect to the Capitol police, you know, if things need to be changed and they obviously do, then a commission is the way that they're going to be able to have the investigatory power to be able to do that and be able to make recommendations that will stick. And then finally, there is just this larger thing. There are certainly Republicans who have made public comments in the last week. John Thune comes to mind um, about how, well, it's, t- you know, 2020 election is over. It's time to move on. Um, when you have an armed insurrection, when you have people breaking into the building, when you have people endangering folks' lives, when you have people dying in the midst of an event at the seat of our national government, this is a time for you to reflect and understand what happened. And if you really do want reconciliation, if you do want to truly be able to move on, there has to be a reckoning where people actually uh, study, examine, acknowledge and take ownership for the things that have happened. Um, and so this, uh, you know, sort of tendency, this reflex to try to pretend that nothing happened or to just move on without addressing what happened before is only going to prolong the problem and it's going to make it worse and it's going to make it fester more. So I understand i don't agree strategically with what mccarthy and 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 mcconnell are doing i think ultimately at the end of the day it's going to come back to hurt them right because they're not showing leadership they seem to be more afraid than they are sort of you know taking sort of a strong position of actually being able to address these issues and they're playing heavy partisanship with it but you know i can't say that i was surprised by anything uh that i saw
4: well um First off, let me let me say that I agree with the 35 Republican House members who voted uh, for the commission um, uh, for for several reasons. One, I do agree that a study needs to be made Two, quite frankly, a study is going to be made uh, as to what happened. The question is, is it going to be done to a, a, a truly bipartisan commission with an equal number of Republicans and Democrats with. Uh, with the requirement for a bipartisan agreement before subpoenas are issued, or is it going to be uh, investigated by House and Senate committees, which are at the present moment dominated by Democrats, in which they can have sole exclusive power over the over the subpoenaing of uh, potential witnesses? So a commission, on its face, looks a lot like a lot, lot more balanced in terms of trying to reach the truth, as opposed to simply a a partisan investigation. Uh, I don't quite agree with Kevin in terms of it being dead in the Senate. There's a certain number of Senate Republicans who are looking at it as to, and they're going to need to get 10 in order to get it passed. And some of them are simply looking for some additional tweaks to the proposal uh, that came out of the House. Susan Collins, uh, the Republican from Maine in particular, has been uh, sort of pushing it's an inside baseball issue, but it's an important issue. She wants to make sure that both uh, the, the the Democratic chair and Republican vice chair have an equal say in the staff that's hired uh, before she'll come on board. And whether or not she can bring some other Republicans as well, uh, we'll just have to see. But, um, you know, as Andra said, you know what took place on January 6th was was horrifying to all of us who who believe in the democratic process. An investigation not only needs to take place, but will take place. The question is how will it be done? And at the present moment, I think that that a bipartisan commission uh, with some additional tweaks is the way to go.
0: Susan Collins always wants to be in a position to help negotiate, uh, and there will be some additional negotiations. Sometimes she's able to do that, sometimes not. I find it difficult to predict in this case. It's a real failure of the House congressional folks. And it's also, uh, I think, some demerits on the Georgia Republicans. There were no Georgia Republicans of the 35 that joined. Doug Collins, when he was in the House, uh, was a rising leader in the Republican um, uh, caucus, but I don't perceive that the others in the Republican, Georgian Republicans are rising leaders. And as they continue to kind of cluster around uh, Trump, Congressman Clyde continues to say terrible things. I mean, just embarrassing things about the direction being just a kind of a, a stroll of visitors. It's, it's very uh, sad for the, um, Georgia Republicans, in my view. Excuse
1: me. Mary Margaret Oliver, I think your dog wants to get involved in this conversation. Dog
0: into another room. Excuse me.
1: That's fine. Uh, <laughs> thank you for taking care of that. Um, let me, Kevin, let me, to continue this conversation, I want to play you a couple sound bites from the debate yesterday. As Mary Margaret said, every Republican in the Georgia delegation uh, voted against, this measure claiming it was highly partisan despite the fact it was one of their own republican colleagues john katko from new york who took many of the recommendations republicans have been making incorporated them into this effort and yet they still voted against it and many of them on the basis that there needed to be a balance here you can't just investigate the january 6th insurrection you also have also have to look at the violence in the streets last summer by Black Lives Matter and Antifa, according to the Republicans. And here is Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene on that subject.
3: You see, what's going to happen with the January 6th commission is the media is going to use this to smear Trump supporters and President Trump for the next few years and cover up the damage, the real damage that's happened to the people of this country, which is tearing down our economy, ripping our borders wide open and hurting this country.
1: Um, so Kevin, I guess you give her points for being quite clear. She thinks that uh, she's trying to protect Donald Trump, pure and simple. Yeah,
2: and as a member of the media, um, you know, I won't, I won't comment on the idea that uh, that's what I woke up this morning thinking about doing. Uh, uh, but all that said, I, I actually think Ed and. Uh, Uh, Representative Oliver kind of point to uh, maybe what's the the thing that we should be thinking most about as Georgians. And it's it's the point that our, you know, our Republicans in the House and the party in general in our state, as the state continues to emerge as very important to the country, both politically, economically and in every other way. Are we going to have leaders in Washington that appropriately represent Mm. The citizens and the concerns of the state, rather than kind of running to the extremes or getting involved in, uh, in, in in things in a political way that don't advance the interests of the state and position our politicians as having the influence that would help the state and in, in the nation's capital. Mary Margaret?
0: Compare, compare Marjorie Taylor Greene and Congressman Clyde to our new Democrat congressional faces, uh, Nakima Williams, uh, national media star, uh, Lucy McBath, a star, Carolyn Bardeau joining the Problem Solver Caucus, which I'm very happy to see her do. And then, of course, the faces of Warnock and Ossoff, Georgia's Democratic leaders are emerging as leaders uh, nationally. Georgia's uh, politics of Georgia are national focus, and we are carrying forward with excellent, excellent new people. I'm I'm thrilled with their performances. I'm embarrassed by Clyde and Marjorie Taylor Greene.
1: Edward, I'm going to give you a chance, but let me play, before you do, let me, for you and Andra and everybody else, uh, let me play uh, Tim Ryan's response, Representative Tim Ryan from uh, Ohio, because I think he expressed uh, in no uncertain terms how Democrats were feeling about the fact that Republicans bailed out on this at the last minute. Let's listen and talk about it
2: people scaling the Capitol, hitting the Capitol Police with lead pipes across the head, and we can't get bipartisanship. What else has to happen in this country? Cops. This is a slap in the face to every rank-and-file cop in the United States. If we're going to take on China, if we're going to rebuild the country, if we're going to reverse climate change, we need two political parties in this country that are both living in reality, and you ain't one of them.
1: So Edward, that sort of is a uh, reaffirmation of what Kevin Riley just uh, said. You, you, you've got to be able to have two parties that can dialogue and try to accomplish uh, uh, actual policies. I think. Well, and, and
4: and I agree in both Congress and the Georgia General Assembly. And I think, quite frankly, particularly here in Georgia, there is a long history of the two parties coming together on a wide range of issues uh, in our General Assembly. Mary Margaret is someone who's known to be able to cross the aisle in the Georgia General Assembly. I would like to think when I was there, I did the same. And there are a lot of folks in the Georgia General Assembly that, that do come together and pass a lot of very important legislation that moves our state forward. I, I would sort of take issue with Mary Margaret in terms of the fact that while I may disagree with some of the congressional votes on this commission, that we do have good problem solvers in the Georgia General Assembly. I don't necessarily point to the folks that have been mentioned so far, but uh, more low-key people like Buddy Carter, uh, who I think was ranked by one group as one of the top in the top 10% in terms of uh, folks who are working across the political aisle, it was, uh, in terms of a study that was done. Austin Scott from South Georgia also has a good reputation for working across the aisle. So we do have some folks down there who, in a more low-key manner, all, are all working across the aisle. And and you know and I, I applaud any legislator on either side of the political aisle of that uh, that focuses more on governing than giving a speech.
3: You know, I think it's really important for us to just call out false equivalencies. Um, because that's the big problem uh, with this particular debate. Um, under no circumstances, I don't care if it was Antifa or you know or, or Black Lives Matter. If if they had stormed the building, I would support an investigation against that. Uh, even if I had some interests and in policy preferences that might be aligned, for instance, with Black Lives Matter, right? There's no justification of that, and that warrants a congressional delegation. But to hold up the false equivalency of saying there were protests. That got violent over the summer. So therefore, we're going to sort of equate and lump together those with this uh, riot where people tried, you know, were threatening to lynch the vice president um, and break into the building and would have killed or tried to kill uh, members of, of, of the House and the Senate if they could have gotten near them. Right. It's just it's offensive. Uh, it belies what we all saw, so to, to try to gaslight something that like everybody watched happen in real time on TV is particularly offensive, and it, it, it's just wrong here. Um, and so when your partisanship has become so calcified that you can't even call obvious things wrong, that's when it's a problem, and that's what I think makes this so shocking. That's what made Representative Clyde's statement. So shocking. He's perhaps even gaslit himself since he forgot that, like, you know, he was on tape or on camera trying to barricade the House chamber to keep people out. Um, Or you forgot being bunkered in with other people for hours, uh, you know, while you were waiting for everything to calm down. Under no circumstances is that okay. And you don't just let it pass because you think that those folks are the folks who vote for you. Your job as a leader is to educate them, to make them better. Or to say, thanks, but no thanks to that vote, and I would actually be willing to sit out of office if that's what it takes in order to represent you, because I don't want to do it.
1: So, so let me uh, marry what happened in the congressional delegation with Georgia's re-election, uh, or election campaigns next year, Edward. Um, there, were th- there were actually three votes that I was looking at. Um, one was this vote on the commission, the establishment of the commission, which every Georgia Republican voted against. Uh, Second was an an Asian-American hate crimes bill, which passed the House again with bipartisan support. Drew Ferguson and Austin Scott being the only Republicans in our delegation who supported it. And finally, yesterday, there was a resolution on the House floor condemning the massage parlor shootings in Georgia. And every Republican in the delegation voted against it. So take all those together and tell me, Edward, and let me get everybody else involved, what is the thinking as the 2022 election cycle comes forward? Is this going to be an all—I mean, I guess we know it's an all-base election, and that's what these votes represent.
4: Well, you know, once you get to the general uh, election um, in November, it it needs to be more than all-base. Uh, you know, know, the party that can move uh, to the middle and pull in independents and and even pull folks across the political aisle to vote for them is is the party that's going to win in in Georgia. Um, And, you know, once again, I agree with with Congressman Ferguson and Congressman Scott, who i mentioned earlier, uh, who voted for the hate crimes legislation. I might also point out that it was uh, Republicans uh, who control the Georgia General Assembly who passed the very expensive hate crimes bill last summer, um, in which I worked with the Anti-Defamation League to get passed. So, uh, so I do think that that you do have folks who who are working to deal with this issue. the uh, the head more The head scratcher is the resolution uh, dealing with uh, the horrible uh, mass murders at the massage parters. Uh, The stated reason by several folks on why they voted no was that it's still under investigation as to what was the motive behind the murders taking place. Um, And and while I understand the need to do an investigation, simply standing with the victims to me is always a good idea. And so while folks voted against that, I'll I'll let them defend that issue. Uh, but, But I do need to, like I said, point out, the fact that uh, that a large number of Republicans here in Georgia uh, have consistently been moving toward recognizing the dangers of hate crimes and have pushed forward very substantive legislation here in, the jo- in Georgia uh, to pass one of the more expansive hate crimes bills uh, that got passed last summer. You
2: know, what Evan? I can't understand, and I'm, I'm curious to see what uh, Representative Oliver uh, has to say about this as well. What's the downside to voting for this legislation? What is happening that someone would—I mean, to me, it's almost the sort of thing that— I don't want to say it's perfunctory because of the tragedy involved, but why wouldn't you want to be on the side of the victims, as as, uh, Ed points out? What could possibly be the motive?
0: Particularly when the tragedy was Georgia. I mean, our five Asian-American representatives and senators— I think, are going to Washington today, many of them, for the bill signing. Uh, Georgia has been a leader. Our, our folks have been a leader based on the tragedy here. Um, the idea that Republicans somehow still feel that there's some political benefit in not giving special treatment to an ethnic group that's been persecuted, that that's the history of not wanting to give what they call special rights to certain groups. Uh, but it's, it's totally... Uh, inconsistent with the modern politics of Georgia. You look at a a fairly strong Republican county, like Forsyth County, the richest county in Georgia, that has a huge uh, Asian-Pacific professional population who would tend to be Republican unless you get up and intentionally insult them. And refusing to support an Asian-American hate crime is an act of intentional insulting to me, and I think to them, too.
1: I apologize. for, uh, Andra, I've got to get to a break, but I want to give you a quick chance to respond to that. You know, we've come a very long way with Republicans since the autopsy that Republicans ordered after the loss of Mitt Romney, uh, saying, what do we have to do to expand the base of this party? We know that since the Trump era began, uh, Republicans have been very happy to shrink their base, but they're fighting demographics. When you don't support a resolution condemning the killings of eight people, six of whom were Asian-Americans, when you uh, argue that, you know, we don't want to single out an ethnic group in terms of a hate crimes bill. Um, they're fighting the future, Andra.
3: Well, they are fighting the future, but part of this is the past. If we were to go back 30 years, Asian-Americans were about 50-50 splits. And so, right, the changes happen in part because of immigration, but also because of this recognition that Asian-Americans experience discrimination. Um, And that's what, uh, you know, Republicans need to be aware of, is that, one, people of color believe in systemic racism, which is at the heart of not, you know, knowing whether or not this was a hate crime. And then also people are paying attention to how you treat their group in addition to how you treat them as individuals.
1: All right, we got to get to our first break of the show. Uh, We'll be back with more in just a moment. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, Andre Gillespie, Edward Lindsay, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver join us uh, for our conversation today. Edward, I'll give you a last word on this conversation in the last segment since you are the Republican on the panel and have to be thinking about what the heck the message is going to be for Republicans in the upcoming election cycle.
4: Well, you know, and the point that I wanted to sort of make is that in addition to uh, demographic groups and and being able to reach into communities uh, to expand your base, you know, Republicans uh, also need to to make sure that they can reach back to groups that they have lost uh, over the last eight years, including folks that 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 you know that that feel aligned with any group that is being discriminated against, uh, and that's a large segment of the suburban community. I actually did a deep dive into uh, precincts in suburban communities with stable demographics over the last eight years to look at the difference in the voting patterns for folks who voted for Romney versus Trump. And on average, uh, President Trump lost uh, around 20 percentage points uh, against Romney. Uh, Romney's performance eight years earlier uh, in various stable uh, suburban precincts. So it's it's not just the need to, uh, you know, the need to reach into new demographic groups, and here in Georgia, and that's extremely important to both political parties if they are to be successful. But it's also uh, important to to uh, recapture the hearts and minds of, of groups that have historically voted with you, but have uh, worried about the tone and tenor uh, that's taken place recently with our former president.
1: All right, we'll watch how that all unfolds as we move toward the 2022 election. And speaking of which, Kevin, uh, Brian Kemp has uh, really essentially launched his reelection campaign by giving interviews to uh, your Greg, Greg Bluestein and to uh, WSB TV. He says he wanted to get out front of the uh, Democrats being able to define him, which he, he believes is what happened and why his election in uh, the last cycle was so close uh, in 2018, uh, and he says he will run proudly on a record of uh, a signing uh, a bill that uh, virtually outlaws abortion in Georgia and uh, overhauling Georgia's election laws. One of the things I found fascinating about his comments, Kevin, is that in many ways I thought Brian Kemp defined himself in 2018 with the commercials he ran uh, from the back of the pickup truck with the shotgun over the knee, the teenage boy sitting next to him. But the point is, he's going to go out there and run on his record.
2: Yeah, I I think that's really the message. Um, He wants to run on the record. And uh, I think the key issue, I'll be interested in, in what our, uh, our political scientists and our politicians uh, think about this. I know Ed's a former politician, Ed, but, but uh, I, you know, uh, if he runs on the coronavirus uh, pandemic, I think that will be the defining issue because how do people feel about that in this state and what happened? His view is he took a measured approach and kept the economy of Georgia strong. And other, the other point of view, of course, is that uh, Georgia had an awful lot of people who, who died and got sick, and it, it could have been managed better. Um, but he's got a record, and uh, he's got little choice but to uh, run on that record, I think.
3: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think right now what Governor Kemp is is trying to do is to establish himself um, and to make sure that he thwarts any serious challenge. Um, You know, I know Vernon Jones is trying to, you know, curry favor with Donald Trump and thinks that an endorsement from him will actually, you know, get him the nomination. But I think that that uh, Jones is an underdog, even with a, a Trump um, endorsement, and so I think by announcing now, by putting his record forward in a way that is sort of palatable to red meat Republicans to a, to the base, right? He might be actually just trying to sort of buffer himself from uh, you know from any additional sort of uh, you know challenges from other people who might be perceived as more credible, who have more longstanding relationships with the Republican Party, um, and that could get him the nomination. Um, But then there is still that general election where you have a state with changing partisan demographics, um, and you have people who think that a lot of those decisions are very, very controversial. And so what Republicans may have liked about how he handled COVID, a lot of other people don't like. Um, And so it's a question of how salient, uh, you know, COVID is going to be for us. In a year and a half. And so, if it is still top of the mind, right, that's a challenge that he um, and every other Republican governor that made the decisions that they made um, in 2020 and and early 2021 will have to face and have to reckon with.
4: Well, the fact of the matter is, every governor, uh, Republican or Democrat, uh, standing for reelection in the next uh, two to four years is going to be judged on how they handled the pandemic. Um, You know, whether it be a Democratic governor in in Michigan, New York or California, all of which uh, have been heavily criticized within their own state for how they handled it in a much more heavy handed way uh, or governors and Republican governors in Florida and Georgia and and, in other parts of of the country as well. You know, this is the defining moment in terms of being a governor. I mean, this is how you govern during a crisis. And so everyone will. I think Kip, uh is right now looks pretty good, assuming that he can avoid a a, a tough partisan fight in the primary. Uh, I think he, he I think he has positioned himself pretty well. The Georgia's economy is looking good compared to most other states. I think a lot of folks are going to be pleased with that over the next uh, eighteen months as Georgia progresses, and we'll just have to see from there. I know that uh, uh, Democrats such as Stacey Abrams is going to be criticizing him. But if we are looking in October of next year with low unemployment uh, and, uh, and a, an expanding economy, uh, he's going to be looking uh, pretty good uh, uh, on the second Tuesday in November.
0: Mary Margaret. All um, state leaders are going to be judged on the pandemic issues. Um, There's a large group of Georgians that feel still very emotionally embittered that Stacey is not governor today. And when you put on top of that group, the solid group of Stacey supporters, you put on top of that the changing demographics of the the outer perimeter counties, and you put on top of that a significant unhappiness with the um, pandemic leadership. The fact that there are more jobs in Georgia and that our reserves are higher than probably they need to be in several different ways uh, is not going to compete with those other issues. Uh, Governor Kemp is not a, an exciting uh, campaigner. Uh, he, he's staked his In 2018, he staked his personality over there with the big truck picking up immigrants and and the shotgun, Um, how he changes that to whatever extent he tries to change that. He doesn't have a very exciting kind of dynamic, an exciting personality, and his going to economic development ribbon cuttings on a daily basis um, is not an exciting growth of additional voters. Those uh, business economic development people who've got their tax breaks are, are probably going to vote for them anyway. Uh, but the workforce folks uh, are not as happy. And Stacey is an exciting candidate. She is an exciting campaigner. And I think it's going to be, again, Georgia will be in the national national news on a very frequent basis. And um, um, I think that's going to be positive for the Democrats. We will sh- We will see. We don't know for sure.
1: Kevin, one of the things that I think is uh, pretty interesting is, despite the fact that Brian Kemp continues as as recently as just two days ago to have Donald Trump attacking him, um, he has not yet drawn a significant Republican opponent in the primaries. Um, He's fended off. Doug Collins says he doesn't want uh, the job, and as as, uh, has already been mentioned on the the show, the uh, one person running against him is uh, Vernon Jones, who is, you know— pretty much at this point a fringe candidate. So he, he, despite the anger among many state Republicans about him not contesting the presidential election here, he nevertheless has got the field to himself. And if the question is who jumps in, who's significant to oppose him?
2: Yeah, I, I think that is interesting. I mean, I, I, you have to give Kemp, I think, some credit for the idea that he hasn't uh, he, he gone after Trump. In other words, you know why get in a fight you probably can't win right? because uh, Trump if Trump keeps coming after you it's going to be news every day. Um, and I you know Ed I, I mean why not? I mean aren't there a number of Republicans who would like to have that job or is it just out of respect for what Kemp has been through that the people who are serious politicians in the state believe uh, as they saw in the Senate races that if you have an, you know, a difficult contest, uh, between Republicans that you really won't help yourself in the general.
4: I think that's a large part of it, is that, is that uh, the experience last year of the of the collins uh fight, uh, intra-party fight, uh, clearly damaged her when it got to the runoff, uh, as well as other factors. Uh, and I think what Kemp is doing with the president, with the former president, rather, is uh, is probably the right tactic. It kind of reminds me of uh, Muhammad Ali's approach in boxing. Sometimes you know, of Opa Dope, he would he would let because he was so strong, he could actually let folks hit him a few times, wear themselves out, and then he would deck him and 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 KO him. Uh, and and I think to a certain degree, Kemp is going. You know, the the wiser strategy is to just let uh, let Trump. Uh, continue his histrionics uh, attacks; Those will eventually wear out. People will stop paying attention to him and then start focusing on his re-election. And we'll just have to see if that's a good strategy. I think it is a wise strategy what he's doing right now. Uh, One thing we haven't discussed in in terms of the next year's election is whether uh, how this country is doing nationally. Uh, Democrats did a good job here in Georgia nationalizing elections uh, in 18 in particular and also in 20 with a fairly unpopular uh, Trump even in in our state uh, with certain demographic groups that I mentioned earlier. Um, And the question is, uh, how will Biden's standing be uh, in 2022 and what impact that will have uh, as uh, these elections are more and more becoming nationalized?
3: I don't disagree with Ed on on that. I mean, I think that elections are nationalized as a function of polarization, and so that's likely going to be there. And, you know, that may give Democrats some challenges going, you know, into the next cycle. As far as Governor Kemp is concerned, um, yeah, he made one really unpopular decision that I, you know, think most reasonable Republicans understand was the right decision. And so they might not publicly say so because they're, you know, afraid to. But, you know, everybody knows that Governor Kemp, you know, could not stand in the way of the certification. of of, of that particular election. And right or wrong, Kemp has buttressed his credentials with respect to that by signing SB 202. Um, And so, uh, you know, as mad as people might have been about that ultimate election outcome, Georgia by itself wasn't going to determine the outcome of the election. Um, And uh, Joe Biden really did win the state, despite all the histrionics to the opposite, So, you know, I think what Kemp is banking on, and rightfully so, is that people are going to be mad, but they're not going to be so mad unless there really is a superstar challenger. And, you know, while there's still time for that to emerge, one hasn't emerged yet. So he, I think, is, you know, is is in the driver's seat and can take advantage of incumbency in the ways that we would typically think of it.
1: Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. (laughs) Kevin Riley, your James Salzer uh, pushed his story out to your website this morning at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The lead says more than two months after President Joe Biden signed a COVID-19 relief bill that, that promised the state about $4.8 billion. The money hasn't found its way yet to Georgia, but Brian Kemp's office is expected to soon announce committees that will tape up, take applications for spending the money over the next few years. Kevin, it's an enormous potential infusion of money and uh, worth uh, talking a little bit about today.
2: It's a, it's a huge number, and I think that, uh, again, our, our, our legislators, uh, uh, our, our experienced politicians can, I think, give us an idea of the scale, and I have to assume it's going to invite uh, a lot of, uh, let's just call it, uh, a battling over who's going to get it and what their fair share is and how it can, be, can and can't be used but in the end, it's the governor's decision. He can—he—he he seems to be playing ball or getting people to do work, but I think it's clear that he'll decide. And uh, I think that that's kind of a nice spot to be in as you're heading into an election, I suppose, when you're a governor.
1: Mary Margaret, a month ago, you wrote an op-ed piece about this very subject and uh, said, we've got to find out how this money is going to be spent. And among other things, if you don't mind my reading your words, here's an important point you made. You want to know, what is the impact of COVID on our 1.7 million George, Georgia school children in K through 12 from virtual learning? Uh, and, and so you think some money should be going toward uh, education. Um, what about the benefits of virtual learning? What about public health? Talk about your concerns about how that money will be distributed.
0: Uh, thank you, AJC, for running my op-ed. I've been pestering the Republican leaders about the need for transparency for this $4.8 billion and for the obligation, responsibility we have to make this money, go to those who have been most hurt by the pandemic. I had a long conversation yesterday with some researchers at Georgia State who have done an analysis of three of the large uh, Metro County school systems on their missing children. There are 39,000 children who did not enroll in school in September, 2020, who were enrolled in September 2019. Where are those children? Um, How much education did they get even though they weren't enrolled? And what are we going to do about it? There are 180 different school systems that seem to be doing 180 different things. And um, I am urging uh, Republican budget leaders and I'm hoping to be on one of the committees that the governor puts together to engage in a partnership about spending this money. Um, so let's look at the poorest children and how are they um, been impacted and who is most hurt in this pandemic. As MARTA chair, I'm also following the little bit of a dust up between the ATL board and the MARTA board over what their responsibilities are for spending the infrastructure transit money. So there's a lot of different issues that are being played out. They're important issues, and they deal with real problems affecting real people, not the fantasy world of Congress about, uh, you know, that we talked about earlier. These are real issues that Georgians are facing, a real issue cities and counties and school districts are facing, and transparency and good use of this huge amount of money is something I'm pestering a lot of people about.
1: Well, Andra, if, if, if I was um, interested yeah. oh, – go ahead, Edward.
4: No, I was just going to sort of uh, – in, in terms of some clarification here, there's more than one pot of money coming to Georgia. There's the, the money that's coming to the state, and then there's money going to local uh, governments, including local school boards. So a, a lot of uh, the education issues that Mary Margaret is mentioning will actually be handled by uh, the local school boards directly because they'll be getting money from a different pot than the money that we're talking about here, that's covered in, in Salzer's uh, column today. Uh, but, but Mary Margaret is, is right in that. Up. There's going to be a close watch, and, and the reason why a lot of that money hasn't been spent yet is that the state uh, and local governments have been waiting for some clarification uh, from the federal government on how the money can be spent. U.S. Treasury uh, sent out its uh, its guidelines, I believe it was about a week ago, maybe 10 days ago or so, in terms of providing the states with guidelines as well as the local government. So that's what a large part of what's going going to be taking place. In talking with uh, Terry England uh, yesterday, uh, he was saying that a lot of the guidelines uh, for the uh, for the state, uh, in terms of how they can be spending money, is going to be focused on things like broadband, uh, which will help uh, folks throughout the state of Georgia, including uh, kids uh, who are still having to do remote learning, uh, economic development, water and sewer, and that sort of infrastructure issues uh, will be a large part of what will be have to be used in terms of state money. Then you've got local money dealing with issues like education.
1: Um, Andre, you're the educator on the panel, and we're seeing an increasing number of studies that have suggested that uh, young people have really been harmed. Uh, to some extent, by trying to learn virtually. And so uh, the notion that find some way to uh, put money behind uh, changing that equation is is an interesting idea.
3: Yeah, um, So I mean, you know, I'll preface this by saying higher ed and K-12 are two different, uh, two different propositions. But, sure. I mean, there's some practical sure. things that, that need to happen. So, you know, assuming that, you know, as I would, that, you know, there's been a lot of learning that's lost and we want to try to make up for that. Right, schools may have to stay open a little bit longer for the next couple of years in order to compensate for some of the deficits that were incurred this particular year. That's going to cost money. That's going to cost wages for you know for for teachers and paraprofessionals. Uh, you know, even practical things like you know paying to keep the lights on in school when they're used to having lower electric bills. So there are all kinds of ways uh, that this is going to be done in addition to some of the social service needs that. Uh, you know, could have now been created as a result of the pandemic, uh, you know, probably need more mental health professionals um, in order to deal with people who have been isolated, who are now trying to transition back into a more social life. So there are all kinds of things that need to be done. And, you know, and, and some of this is sort of part of, uh, of the, the, the CARES Act funding that people complained about that I actually don't see as a problem. This sort of bore out certain infrastructure problems where you have old schools with terrible ventilation, Right. Those schools, they need to be rehabbed and upgraded, uh, you know, in the future uh, so that, you know, perhaps they actually can be used, you know, in a future pandemic where you don't want people breathing stale air and possibly exposing themselves to aerosols, you know, germs that are in aerosols. So there are lots of things that I think, uh, you know, need to be done that, um, you know, don't, you know, that might be sort of beyond the sort of basic PPE kind of thing that are also still part of long term planning um, and what I would call infrastructure.
1: Uh, Kevin, there is one tranche of federal COVID relief money that has already been distributed and that people have been getting individually here in Georgia as across the country, and that's the supplemental $300 of federal uh, money for unemployment benefits. We know that Governor Kemp announced uh, that, uh, like other Republican governors, he is cutting off that money, Uh, He will no longer make it available because uh, there is this sense that uh, some business leaders, he says, have come to him and said, we have thousands of jobs open, and this additional $300 is making it better for people to stay at home than to work. Kevin and then Mary Margaret.
2: yeah I mean I can't imagine a hotter debate right now. Um, I do think it's worth noting I, I, the unemployment numbers in Georgia are, are coming out. I, I just got a note from our Michael Cannell uh, who's covering this that the rate ticked down to 4.3 percent in April from 4.5 We're just that just literally uh, the Department of Labor here in Georgia just I think posted that number. Um, To me, it'll be interesting now to, to, as the debate continues, uh, someone will take credit for that number going down because either people are recovering or or because the governor uh, and Republicans were forcing them back into the workforce. Who knows what really happened? But it's a hot debate. Uh,
0: I surprised at myself at what irritates me in this world of politics that I should be used to. But when he <laughs> cut off the $300, I was really irritated because does he not know about the single mother out there that's delivering food at midnight with her sleeping baby in the car? Does he not know about her? Does he not know about the 40 million uh, Americans that are going to be evicted once they lift the eviction? Does he not know that people are (laughs) working two, three jobs at $10 an hour and still can't pay? Does he not know how this has impacted young families with young children? Um, I think he hangs out with a different crowd of people. And the fact that our, our problems in politics is that we all live in too many bubbles
3: you know, I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued by this discussion, but I haven't seen enough of the discussion of sort of people who are taking long-term benefits because they would rather not work that actually controls for life life issues, like uh, I have no child care, uh, my kids are at home, and I've got to supervise them. Um, and so I think that we need to control for that before making a judgment, and this argument would be more persuasive for me if in September I still see people not working, and schools are open, and school-aged children are, are, are back in school. So I think we have to consider the structural issues there that might actually explain some of these discrepancies and some of this reluctance um, to come back to work and i think you know we as consumers need to be willing to pay more for our goods and services so that people can be paid higher wages because that may also be some of the cross pressure as well Um, and that's a legitimate debate to have right should you be able to get away with paying you know bottom basement sort of like wages for folks where they can't live uh, and if people have kind of gotten hit to that and say, and are waiting, you know, for, for, for higher wages to come in, then, you know, that's also a really important discussion to have.
4: Well, may Margaret, and, and Andra both are, are, are sort of discussing long-term structural issues that go beyond simply the issues that, that are taking place within this pandemic, and it's a worthy discussion to have. But the question in terms of the $300 supplemental, which isn't being cut off immediately, but it's simply – being cut off at the end of June, or your ability to get it at the end of June, which is only two months before they were going to be suspended anyway. And the question is whether or not uh, those are still necessary to be in terms of handling the issues related to the pandemic. And as the unemployment rate drops, the justification for the three extra $300 bump gets harder and harder to justify Um and it's not simply a matter of living in bubbles. If you talk to a wide range of, of uh, in the, uh, businesses around the state, and I have I represent a large number of them around the state, uh, they'll tell you that uh, they are having problems uh, recruiting good people because there is, a, in particular, communities uh, with, uh, with folks sitting there. You know, as long as I'm getting the supplemental, it's a, the equivalent of $15 an hour. And it's hard to recruit folks to come back in now that's probably not taking place here in in Atlanta, uh, but it is a problem in more rural areas outside of outside of metropolitan Atlanta.
1: All right. Edward, Lindsay, because we're running out of time, I got to give you the last word on this. But I want to continue tomorrow. We're going to have a terrific panel. Uh, uh, Sarah Riggs Amico is going to be with us. Julianne Thompson. So we'll be able to continue talking about uh, this issue and more. Patricia Murphy will be here in the meantime. Kevin Riley, Andre Gillespie, Mary Margaret Oliver, Edward Lindsay. Thank you for joining us. I'm Bill Nygut. See you tomorrow. Take care. Stay healthy. If you get a vaccine, maybe you don't have to wear a mask, and isn't that good news? See you all tomorrow.